that the tragedies of Shakespeare are better than the comedies of Shakespeare. From the blank looks on your faces, I see you're not really into Shakespeare. So let me try this. Why, why is it that the Oscar for Best Picture almost never goes to the latest romantic comedy? But it so often goes to movies like, like Schindler's List or A Beautiful Mind. Artistic merit aside, isn't it because life, our lives, resemble the tragic more often than the comedic? You know what comedy is. Comedy is when something starts bad for the hero, but then turns out incredibly well despite the odds. Tragedy is just the opposite. Tragedy is when something starts well. Oh, it seems so good. There's so much promise. And yet it turns bad because of a flaw in the hero, because of a mistake that he made. You know, all of us are here this morning as the hero in the story of our own lives. We're the main protagonist in the story of our own lives. And while there are moments of true comedy, in both senses of the word, if you live long enough, the shape of your life is going to be far closer to Hamlet's than it is to either Harry or Sally. So was Shakespeare right? That life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Is there nothing to do but to bear the tragedy of this life as best we can? Where does God fit into your personal tragedy? This fall we're working through the book of 2 Samuel, which is the story of the rise of fall and return of King David, Israel's greatest king. And this morning we come to the dramatic hinge of the entire book. The first 10 chapters have recounted David's rise and his glory. And now we come in chapter 11 and the story takes a tragic turn. As we consider this morning the fall of Israel's greatest king, I want you to consider your own life. You know, the question is not whether you've experienced your own tragic fall. You have. The question is, how is God involved? And how will you respond? So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's found on page 486. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, page 486. We're going to consider all of chapters 11 and 12 this morning which unfold very much like a five-act Shakespearean play. Act one. Act one. The temptation. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. 
It's springtime in Jerusalem. It's springtime in Jerusalem, the time when kings go off to war and also the time, as Tennyson put it, when a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love. Only David's not a young man. He's a mature king with all of the responsibilities that that calling entails. It's, it's been about a year since David defeated the Aramean allies of the Ammonites. We saw that in chapter 10 uh, a couple of weeks ago. It's time now to, to, to finish off the job by, by capturing and destroying Rabbah, the Ammonite capital city. The armies march off. But David stays behind. We're not told why. Maybe he's tired. Maybe he's confident that Joab can get the job done on his own. And David's better off actually staying at home, attending to the details of government. We don't know the reason. All we know is that it was the wrong decision. Even before tragedy strikes, the narrator lets us know that something is wrong. The king is not where he's supposed to be. And so is it any surprise that temptation finds him? Temptation in the form of a very beautiful woman. You know, there's nothing to suggest that David went looking for her. He didn't, he didn't wake up that day saying, I, I know, I know what I'll do. Today, let's commit adultery. No. No, David just gets up, gets off his bed, goes walking around on the roof of his house, and bam, temptation has found him. Of course, he shouldn't have been walking around on the roof of his house anyway. He should have been camped out on the fields with the army. You see, he simply neglected what he should have been doing. And in doing so, made himself vulnerable to what he should not have been doing. Before we go any further in this play, in this story, we've got to be honest with ourselves about temptation. Temptation comes to all of us. But, but it is true that actually most of the time... We don't go looking for temptation. No, we don't go looking for it. But but how often are we guilty of putting ourselves in temptation's way by neglecting what we should be doing, by by neglecting our responsibilities and, and our calling, our duties in life? You see, there's a, there's a really important thing that we've got to realize about, about temptation, and that is willpower, sheer willpower, is a really lousy defense against temptation. After all, temptation works by appealing to something in us that we really want. Temptation works by appealing to our will. Now, I, I don't mean to deny the power of the Holy Spirit in any way here, but to think that we can just stand there in the face of temptation, and resist it, and resist it, and resist it, is foolish. Scripture tells us to flee temptation. But but flee where? Well, flee to the good works that God created us to do. Flee into the positive calling that God has placed on our lives. Here is how the Spirit helps us. To resist temptation by bringing us to the positive duties, the positive responsibilities that he's given us as husbands, as wives, as mothers, as fathers, as as students, as employees, as employers. 
Do you find yourself struggling with temptation this morning? Well, ask yourself, where does temptation most often find you? In the midst of your duties, giving yourself fully to being a loving husband? Is, is that where the temptation to pornography finds you? Or does it find you up late at night all alone with a computer screen? When you should have been asleep in bed next to your wife. Does, does, does temptation to, to gossiping with, with your girlfriend, running down a, 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 another woman in church or, or, or another friend at school, does, does that temptation find you while you are in the midst of giving yourself to caring for your children, building a home for your family, positively discipling your kids, positively discipling another young woman in the church? Probably not. It probably finds you as you neglect those things and give yourself instead to what you shouldn't have been doing in the first place. Brothers and sisters, do not try to fight temptation by just standing there and saying no. Give yourself positively to the life of love and righteousness that God has called you to as a disciple. Fight temptation through obedience. Fight temptation through following. Act 2. Act 2, the fall. Look at verse 3. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields, how could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare, may flare up. 
and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of your king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. We'll stop there. One thing leads to another, doesn't it? The story quickly moves through a series of interactions with David. First, David and Bathsheba, where, where David sends for her, he, he takes her, and then he sends her away. A one-night stand, a, a moment of passion and lust. It turns out that David is but a man. But the tension in the story builds when she sends a message of her own. I'm pregnant. And so the action moves now to a new set of interactions between David and Uriah. David knows he's in trouble, so the cover-up begins. He sends for Uriah, much the same way that he sent for Bathsheba. So solicitous about Uriah, about the army, about his welfare. Go, spend some time with your wife. You've come from a long, long way. He tries repeatedly to deceive Uriah into covering up his own sin, even getting him drunk to do it. David continuing to give all the orders. But Uriah, the Hittite, proves to be the only godly man in this chapter. When David's first plan fails, he resorts to another. He sends Uriah away with his own death warrant. And now the action shifts to David and Joab. We don't know what Joab thought of David's message, just that he carried it out quite efficiently. He sends word that the deed is done, and David once again sends a messenger with a message. Don't let it bother you, Joab. These things happen. One week later, after the official mourning is over, one week later, one week Later, David sends for Bathsheba again, Uriah's wife, one more time, and he makes her his wife. The chapter ends a little less than nine months later with the birth of a son. Everyone assumes it's Uriah's, or they weren't counting very carefully, and they assume it's David's. It really doesn't matter. Isn't David noble for taking the orphan child as his own? Or isn't that great? God's blessing their marriage already. Comforting Bathsheba with a son 
and the loss of her husband. No one but the guilty know that anything is amiss. No one that is except for God. The end of verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Friends, here we have the perfect picture of the sinfulness of sin. I want you to see five things about sin from this passage. First, we see its deceitfulness. Sin's deceitfulness. Throughout, David is the man in charge. He's sending. He's taking. He's ordering. He thinks he's in control. He thinks he's got sin on a short leash. He's brought it out to play for a little while, but now he's putting it back in its cage, and no one will be the wiser. But it's a charade. David's not in charge. As the whole thing spins out of control, that is so very clear. David's not in charge. He's a slave throughout, a slave to his lust and then a slave to his guilt, which now he has to cover up. Friends, we cannot control sin. We cannot manage sin. Sin masters the sinner. Second, do you see the mockery of sin here? The mockery of sin. Bathsheba purifies herself from her ritual impurity only to have David make her morally impure. David asks of Uriah's welfare and the welfare of of others, but all along all he means is his deception. Joab, premeditated murder is, you know, just one of those things that happen. Don't let it bother you. Sin mocks our pretensions. Sin mocks our self-righteousness. It makes fools of us. Which leads to the third thing that I want you to see. Can you see the folly of sin in this passage? A crown in exchange for a night's pleasure. Self-respect and integrity given in exchange for a moment of stolen delight. A man's life given in exchange for a man's reputation. Maybe for a throne. Sin promises so much. But in the end, it delivers so little. Fourth, look at the way in which sin dehumanizes us. After verse 3, where we learn Bathsheba's name, Her name is not mentioned again. Bathsheba is just some woman, an object used for someone else's pleasure. And then a pawn in someone else's gain. After verse 13, Uriah really is no longer a person, in David's eyes anyway, just, just an impediment that must be removed. And after verse 17... Joab is no longer an accomplished and loyal general. He's just been reduced to a hatchet man. David is beastly in his use and in his abuse of power, in his sin. And in in the wake of it all, he corrupts or destroys everyone around him. 
Friends, sin does not liberate us. Sin debases us. It dehumanizes us and dehumanizes the people around us. Fifth, we see the progress of sin. The progress of sin. I mean, as this chapter rolls around, we see sin is voracious. It never rests. One sin is never enough. It never stops there. Sin grows. Sin progresses. It begins with negligence of duty. It leads then to lust. Lust then leads to an abuse of power and then adultery and then more abuse of power and deception and then more abuse of power and conspiracy and then murder and then more abuse of power in a cover up. And then finally theft, the taking of another man's wife and the whole thing covered in deception. This is the nature of sin. It does not rest. It is not content. It means to murder our souls. And it will not stop until it does so. You see, if we could see sin for what it really is in all of its sinfulness, we would be horrified beyond our darkest imagination. And so sin never comes that way. Sin comes cloaked and concealed, disguised. But what it really is, when it's unmasked as it is unmasked in 2 Samuel 11, what it really is is beyond our disgust, beyond our revulsion. And yet, as the passage will not let us escape, we are responsible for it. David is the actor. He is the one sending. He is the one ordering. He is the one taking. And so are we. Though we may not have committed adultery, though we may not have conspired to murder, though we may not have abused official power, friends, our sin is no different than David's in its nature. Left unchecked, it grows. Left to itself, it is willing to pay an unspeakable price for a worthless return. Left to itself, it corrupts and dehumanizes us as we use and abuse the people around us for our own ends, our own pleasure. And though we like to think, just as David did here, I think, that, that, that we're in charge of our sin, that, that it won't get out of hand, that, that, that we'll just indulge it a little bit and then put it back in its box. Nothing could be further from the truth. The evidence is all around us. In ruined marriages, in broken relationships, in fractured families, and in the isolation. The isolation that comes when we have nothing to clothe ourselves in, but the ongoing deception that we use to hide our own guilt. For it is, in the end, our sin. And we have no one else to blame for it. Act 3. 
the judgment. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man. The rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. We'll stop there. Throughout chapter 11, David's sin was cloaked and it was hidden. A a, a woman is raped. A marriage is destroyed. A man is murdered. Another man corrupted. A throne is disgraced. And nothing is said. Nothing is done. Nothing is known. We get to the end of chapter 11, and and, and it is scandalous. Worst of all, God is silent, absent even. But as the last verse of chapter 11 shows, God was watching. And as chapter 12 opens, the silence of God is broken. Now it is God's turn to send Now it is God's turn to speak. Now it is God's turn to give orders. And that's exactly what he does. Through Nathan the prophet, the charges are read. The evidence is produced. And God pronounces his verdict. His verdict against his own anointed king. The judgment comes in three statements. First, in verse 10, the sword will never depart from David's house since he used the sword to strike down Uriah. Second, in verse 11, David's wives will be violated and taken away by someone close to him. 
just as he violated his close friend's wife. Third, verse 14, the child born of the illicit union will die. Three sins, three curses. It reminds me of Genesis 3 and the three curses that God pronounced at the first fall of man. But behind these three sins and and, and the three specific judgments that they bring, sins against other people, judgments that now will come upon David, behind all of that stands the single sin and the single judgment. Three times in this passage, God confronts David with the fact that in murdering Uriah, in taking Bathsheba, in engaging in illicit sexual union, David sinned against God. Verse 9, why did you despise the word of the Lord? Verse 10, because you despised me. Verse 14, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. David had taken whatever he wanted. So now the Lord, who had given him everything, who had elevated him to the throne, who had delivered him from all his enemies, who had established his house, now the Lord would take away. Friends, all sin is finally sin against God. Because all sin is a despising of God's word. What what word, what what command did did David despise? Well, uh, I mean, I'll give you three. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not covet. How's that for a start? But these aren't merely commands, you see. The word of God is an expression of God, of his character, of his goodness, of his wisdom. It is almost like an extension of God himself. And so there is no sin that is not finally an assault on God himself. No matter which human being it was committed on. Friends, David stands here like Adam, very much presented to us as the best humankind has to offer with every advantage, with every help that God himself had given him. God denied him nothing. And if he had needed more, well, all he had to do was but ask. But like Adam, in fact, exactly like Adam, David despised God's word. All that God had given him was not enough. And so he took what was not his to take. Shakespeare was right. Such and so finely bolted didst thou seem. And thus thy fall hath left a kind of blot to mark the full fraught man and his best endued with some suspicion. For this revolt of thine, methinks, is like another fall of man. As David stands condemned, so do we. Can you see the perfect justice of God? 
David tried to hide his sin. And so God sent Nathan in such a way that David condemned himself. David sinned in his own house and against another man's house, destroying it. And so judgment falls on the house of David. David sinned against another man's marriage in private, and so David's marriage would be violated in public. Publicly shamed. David sinned in illicit union. And so the fruit of that union would be taken away from him. At every step of the way, the, ju- the judgment of God, the, the justice of God perfectly fits the crimes. Friends, God will not judge us for what we did not know or could not do. He doesn't need to. He has plenty of evidence without that. When he judges in this life and in the next, it will be perfectly just. Every mouth will be stopped. All will be will be silenced. For there will be no defense to be made. Except like David to confess that we are the man. We want to know when we when we look at this, why God didn't stop all the sin. But the Bible is concerned that we that we not miss the most relevant point, the point that we are responsible for the sin and that God will hold all of it to account someday. We may be mocked by our own sin. But God will not be mocked by sin. Not yours, not mine. It will be judged. But there is not just condemnation in God's judgment. There is also grace in this passage. I'm sure you saw it. Did you see it? God doesn't take the kingdom away from David as he took it away from Saul. In the midst of the most scandalous of stories, this might be the most scandalous thing of all. Why doesn't David die as he deserves for his sins? I mean, I mean, it's shocking. All he says is, I have sinned. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. That's the scandal, friends. Why? The answer is God's unmerited, electing grace. That's what we see there in that most scandalous of verses, verse 13. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. I mean, I think it's at this point, as, as a reader, as you're reading through Second Samuel, you understand why chapter 7 came when it did, even though chronologically it may have happened later. We needed to see chapter 7 first so that we would be prepared, so that we would understand this moment. David is not spared because of the quality of his repentance. He hasn't really even repented yet. He's just confessed his guilt. David isn't spared because of all the great things that he had done for God before. God has already made it clear, I did it all. I did it all for you. 
And therefore, that's how bad your sin is. No, David is spared because of the covenant of grace. Way back, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said, When he does wrong, I will punish him. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul. Here in verse 13, when, when, when Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin, that, that verb is the same verb that we use for the Passover. The Lord has passed over your sin. It is also the same verb that is used in describing the covenant ceremony in which one party passes through the animals that were cut in two as guarantors. Of the covenant and as pictures of the covenant curse that would fall on the one who broke the covenant. Friends, this is why David is spared. Because the God of the covenant who passes over his people's sins has passed through the judgment of the covenant curse itself for them. You see, the day would come when the son of David, who who God promised would be flogged for his sins, That the day would come when the son of David would also be the son of God. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, who who was tempted in every way as we are, as David was, and yet was without sin even once. Jesus Christ would bear the sin of the house of David as the son of David. But not only that, Jesus Christ would bear the sin of the entire people of God Whom the true king represents. And there on the cross, he would suffer the floggings, not just of men. But the floggings of God himself. The son would die. The son would suffer the sword. The son would suffer the public shame that sin deserves. And in his death. He would bear the curse of the covenant and remove it. The wrath of God against the sin of God's people exhausted in the son who took the father's place. Who took my place. Who took your place. If you will have him. This is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And in love, the Father, Yahweh, God, raised the Son and seated him on the throne of his father, David, the throne of the kingdom of God, so that all who put their faith in this king, all who put their faith in this son, who suffered judgment in our place, may enter into his kingdom. Through his shed blood on the cross. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. That we who should be outside the kingdom. Can come into the kingdom. Because of what the king has done. Jesus, the son of David. Bore the curse that David himself was spared. That we too might be spared with him.
If you're not a Christian, if you don't know this king and this love, today is the day to deal with him. Please understand, therefore, that this good news, this good news of the gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ begins with the bad news that Nathan brings. Grace begins in judgment. So if you're here this morning and, and, and you're not a believer and you're, you're, you were expecting maybe more of a feel-good message, understand this. Do not run away from the conviction that you feel. Do not avoid the judgment and the condemnation that your own conscience is giving you at this moment. Instead, understand it as the first stirrings of grace and let it lead you to confess your guilt even as David did and then turn to Christ for mercy. If you you want to know more about that, if you'd like to talk more about that, I'll be standing at the door afterwards. Nothing would give me greater joy than to, to help you think about how to respond to the guilt that you feel in the grace of Jesus Christ. Christian, I I must ask you, are are you in a position to hear God's word of correction and conviction when it comes? Is is, is your heart, is your conscience still soft so that when God sends Nathan, your heart burns in you and you're able to hear a word against you? Is there anybody in your life that could play a role like Nathan? Or have you made sure to surround yourself with only people who say nice things about you? Christian, that's got to be like the worst thing we could do for ourselves. Because we're all just like David. We can all find ourselves deeply self-deceived about our sin. We need people in our life. And this is what the local church is for. People in our life who know us well enough and who have been given permission. And that's really what church membership does. Given permission to speak into our lives. To speak words that we don't want to hear but need to hear. This is why it's so important to come and sit under the preaching of God's word. Because you don't know. You don't know in advance what God's word might have to say to you on that particular Sunday. It's why it's so important that we're spending time in God's word regularly, quietly, alone. Just with our hearts and with God. Seeking not just to become better Bible scholars, but to hear. To hear a word that comes against us first. So that we can hear that word that then comes for us. In Jesus Christ. Act 4. The response. Act 4. The response. We'll pick it up in verse 15. After Nathan had gone home. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground, 
After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While, while the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and, and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Friends, how do you respond to the judgment and the mercy of God? Well, the answer to that question is going to reveal the state of your heart. The author of Samuel is setting up a contrast here between David and Saul. Back in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul was confronted in a very similar way by Samuel the prophet, he began with the exact same words that David began with, I have sinned against the Lord. But then he kept going. Blame shifting. It was the people making excuses. I didn't know what to do. Showing that he feared what the people thought of him more than what God thought of him. But not David. David admits his sin, full stop. And then he backs that statement up with a demonstration of repentance and faith. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, repentance means not only your ch a change in your attitude towards something, but that you then give proof of that change by going and doing the exact opposite. This is what happens here. The household is scandalized and shocked at David's grief. But when the child dies... He doesn't continue to weep and mourn. He's, he, he doesn't bitterly complain about God's judgment. No, no, he gets up. He takes a bath. He, he gets dressed. And he goes and he worships God. And now the household is even more shocked. You, you see, David doesn't care what people think of him at this point. He cares what God thinks. And in this we see that he accepts God's judgment against him. He vindicates God. He takes God's side against himself. And then he trusts God. Friends, genuine repent, repentance grieves not just the consequences of sin, which we don't like, but it grieves sin itself. True repent, repentance takes God's side against itself and judges itself. As David would later admit in Psalm 51, reflecting on this time against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. David owns his sin against God, and he submits to God's verdict. But, but there's more, because David also shows not just repentance, he shows genuine faith. He accepts God's grace, and he turns to God, not away from God. In the end, David worships God. He doesn't live in fear. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't complain. He, he doesn't try to earn God's love back. No, he trusts as he says, that if mercy is to be found anywhere, it is from the very same God who has every right to judge him. Friends, this is what God's free grace should produce in us. Repentance, not license, and faith, not fear. This is how we should respond to God's Judgment of our sin at the cross, not by running away from God, but by running to God, not by complaining about our lot in life, but by vindicating God against our own sin, not by trying harder, but by trusting more 
fully. What would that look like in your life today? You know, the temporal consequences of sin may very well remain. That's what we're going to see in the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. As the temporal judgment of David's sin just continues to work itself out. And those consequences may very well remain in your life in order to wean you off love of sin. Friends, just as David understood, so we need to understand the eternal consequences of sin have been dealt with. Turn to Christ in your sin. Turn to Christ, not away from him. And trust him. Which leads us to Act 5, the promise. Verse 24. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and he attacked and captured it. He took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones and it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought it out brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brickmaking. He did this to all the Ammonite towns. And then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. The story ends where we began, at war with the Ammonites. But instead of defeat and shame at the hands of the Ammonites, which is what we would expect After these two chapters, what we see is the promise renewed. God's love for his anointed king confirmed. David is back where he belongs, leading the armies of God. The king is crowned. The covenant promises are kept. And in verse 24, a son is born. Solomon was actually the fourth son of David and Bathsheba. And so once again, as we've seen repeatedly, the author is compressing time here. He's skipping over some things. But but he's doing it for a reason. This is Nathan's last appearance in 2 Samuel. The narrator wants us to know that God's last word from Nathan to David was not a word of judgment, but a word of love. Solomon means peace, and he would be, as 1 Kings will show, He would be the king who would bring peace to Israel. But God wanted David to know that God had his own special name for Solomon. Jedidiah, loved by the Lord. And so the chapter ends. The enemies defeated, the king crowned, the armies of the Lord safe in Jerusalem. A picture of peace and rest promise of God's love. Friends, the fact is our sin calls into question the promise of God's love. As 2 Samuel continues on, we're going to see that the result 
of David's sin continues. The curses pronounced are going to work their way out. But that is not all we see. Second Samuel 11 lets us know that a better king is needed. But the end of chapter 12 lets us know that God is going to keep his promise and provide that better king. A son that God chose, that God loves, a kingdom in which God's people are at rest and their enemies are subdued. A king who does what the king is supposed to do. And that's not Solomon. That's Jesus. That is what he did and that, friends, is what he will do. We still look forward to that day. That day of coming rest. That day when the son of peace, the son whom God loves, brings all the armies of Jerusalem home. When he returns, we will be with him. That's the promise. That's the hope. And until that day, we give ourselves in humble faith to faithful obedience, doing what God has given us to do today. Left to ourselves, our lives are a tragedy. That's the truth. Left to ourselves, our lives are a tragedy. But submit our lives to Christ the King. That tragedy is transformed. It's transformed into a a love story. a, A comedy in the old and true sense of the word. In which as bad as things start... Against all odds and against all hope and against all expectation, they turn out far better than we deserve. Friends, this is God's story. This is God's story for God's people. Is it your story? Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you give us ears to hear your word, your word that comes against us so that it can be for us. Lord, we pray that you would unmask the deceitfulness of sin in our own lives and that you would allow us to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ in contrast. That you would draw us to him faith. We ask this in his name. Amen.